Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 11, Episode 1, Tokugawa Ieyasu's Big Move. Welcome to the early Edo period. This season will discuss the events that influenced Japanese history from 1603 to 1751. While this era is also called the Tokugawa period, I prefer to refer to it as the Edo period because it is in keeping with the typical practice of location-based names. The Heian period, the Kamakura period, the Muromachi period, and the Nara period are all named for places, so I would argue that Edo period is more suitable. Also, while the Tokugawa clan certainly supplied the shoguns for this era, they were not an all-powerful ruling family, and at times it was the organizational structure provided by the new unofficial capital of Edo which allowed them to regain control after periods of diminished power. When people refer to feudal Japan, they are most likely picturing something similar to the Edo period. There is no small amount of debate among Japanese historians regarding whether the label of feudal or medieval are truly applicable to Japan during any period, but that discussion is well beyond the scope of this humble podcast. The economics of the Edo period, as well as its agrarian habits, cultural shifts, and various tendencies, are usually understood in a rather static and unchanging fashion. Throughout the season, however, we will be pushing back against the narrative of a nation frozen in time, and explore how some of the more famous developments of the Edo period, the isolation policies especially, came into being. Although he was a tremendously talented individual, Tokugawa Ieyasu did not conceive the Edo period from whole cloth, and many of its so-called static tendencies were the result of a dynamic, changing landscape over which the shogunate strived to maintain control. When he became the Sei Tai Shogun in 1603, Tokugawa Ieyasu was still in the midst of a delicate situation. Although the Toyotomi clan was unable to actively consolidate power on the same scale as Ieyasu, the late Taiko's family still enjoyed the staunch support of powerful daimyo who had supported Ieyasu at Sekigahara mostly because they disliked Ishida Mitsunari. These included Kato Kiyomasa and Ikeda Terumasa, men whose enmity could threaten Tokugawa Ieyasu's hold on power. Once again, he would need to exercise patience, consolidate power gradually, and take great care not to appear rebellious or disloyal to the Toyotomi successor. It certainly helped, however, that after Sekigahara, he awarded both men with massive domains worth hundreds of thousands of koku. In the wake of Sekigahara itself, it was not immediately clear that the rest of the nation had indeed submitted to the authority of the Tokugawa. Shimazu Taratsune was particularly eyed as a potential problem, as his clan's domains in distant southern Kyushu were highly defensible and secure. Ieyasu went so far as to arrange for Kato Kiyomasa to begin preparations in northern Kyushu for a campaign against the Shimazu, but in early 1602, Shimazu Taratsune traveled to Fushimi Castle and officially submitted to Ieyasu. His submission appears to have inspired other recalcitrant daimyo to offer their obedience as well, and the Uesugi and Satake clans of northern Japan bent the knee soon after the Shimazu. 
While he had redistributed some of the fiefs of the clans who had opposed him at Sakigahara, Ieyasu did not dare to risk a fresh rising once he became the shogun with a lot of arbitrary and high-handed redistributions. His administration broadly organized the nation's daimyo by labeling them either fudai lords, who were long-standing hereditary vassals of the Tokugawa clan since long before Sekigahara, and tozama lords, who had sworn allegiance to the shogun either after or just before Sekigahara. Tozama literally meant outsider, and this was doubtless a reference to the fact that the tozama lords were not allowed to hold office in the new shogunate administration. That honor belonged to the Fudai alone. While it is tempting to imagine the Tozama Daimyo as an oppressed group of second-class samurai, things were not quite this simple. While Fudai Daimyo were eligible for higher office within the Bakufu, they also did not directly hold the land their clan managed. The personal domain of the Tokugawa clan had expanded considerably since Sekigahara, and it was from this massive surplus of available territory that they awarded their fudai retainers with fiefs. As circumstances changed or as the contemporary shogun's whims dictated, the fudai could be relocated to different fiefs around the nation at a moment's notice. The tozama, on the other hand, enjoyed long-standing ties with their subjects, as their land could not be seized by the shogunate unless there was legitimate cause. While they were shut out of serving the bakufu, the regional power they accumulated was considerable, and they were not as dependent upon the shogun for their authority, unlike the fudai. It is also a mistake to assume that all of the tozama daimyo nurtured some inherent resistance or dislike of the Tokugawa shogunate. The Yamauchi clan, to whom Ieyasu had granted Tosa province as a domain after their service at Sekigahara, were considered tozama because they were not hereditary Tokugawa retainers. Yet, they owed their entire Han, with its annual yield of 202,000 koku, to Ieyasu, and by extension, to the Tokugawa family. Whether this gratitude would last over 250 years is a subject for next season, but generally in the wake of Ieyasu's elevation to shogun, tozama clans like the Yamauchi, who had been granted vast profitable domains, were largely content. As for the less contented Tozama, Ieyasu had no intention of allowing their dissatisfaction to plunge the nation once more into civil war. The shogunate adopted a generally suspicious attitude of Tozama daimyo who had opposed Ieyasu at Sekigahara, as well as those who had remained neutral throughout the conflict between himself and Ishida Mitsunari. The many patchwork lands across the nation which the Tokugawa now counted as their personal domains were granted to Fudai Daimyo with the expressed purpose that they were to keep their nominally independent neighbors under strict surveillance and report any potential trouble to the Bakufu. Just because the independent-minded Tozama governed hereditary fiefs did not place them outside the authority of the shogunate. Ieyas himself orchestrated a vast economic campaign against them by ordering them to build new fortifications or repair some of their existing castles in the name of maintaining national defense. At the same time, he set strict limits on the sizes of the castles they were allowed to possess and continued Hideyoshi's custom of forbidding the building of new fortresses without official permission. Likewise, he placed limits on the size of sailing vessels possessed by daimyo, further curtailing their ability to trade with distant peers in large quantities. 
While the other daimyo were forbidden from expanding their existing fortresses, Ieyasu himself suffered no such prohibition, and he spent much of his later years renovating and expanding Edo Castle, which became the largest fortress in Japan at the time as a result. As a way of killing two birds with one stone, he arranged for the primary source of funds for the massive project to be borne by other daimyo around the nation, thus ensuring their savings were drained, and the practical superiority of the shogunate made essentially unassailable. To his most loyal longtime retainers, Ieyasu gave the title of Roju, or Elder. There were only two Roju at a time during the reign of Ieyasu and Hidetada, but in the future this advisory council would be expanded. Upon the foundation of the Tokugawa shogunate, however, these men were little more than deputies for the shogun. Powerful deputies, to be sure, but possessing no regular duties outside of whatever task the big boss had set them to. The office of Roju was high-ranking, however, and certainly the prestige of such an appointment overshadowed its lack of actual invested power. The Roju became the leaders of the Hyojo Sho, the quasi-judicial arm of the Edo Bakufu, which was meant to be a callback to the Kamakura Shogunate. Subordinate to the Roju were Bugyo, or commissioners, and beneath the commissioners were the Ometsuke. The Ometsuke served as the leaders of the shogunate's secret police, and the Metsuke who served under them would investigate claims of corruption, wrongdoing, and treason within the domains of Tozama and Fudai alike. Under Ieyasu, this administrative framework served mostly to execute his edicts and warn the Bakufu of potential opposition from hostile daimyo nationwide, but it would evolve along with the Edo shogunate as time passed. A few episodes from now, we will explore the bureaucratic framework which came to undergird the Tokugawa shogunate and greatly contributed to its impressive longevity. Because the Tokugawa were a samurai clan first and foremost, they also had a tiered system of retainers and vassals. While earlier shogunates had employed the term gokenin to refer to their trusted retainers, the Tokugawa clan continued utilizing the Sengoku terminology, using the term hatamoto to refer to their trusted retainers and gokenin to refer to lower-ranking vassals. The hatamoto, or bannermen, were drawn not only from the ranks of longtime hereditary retainers, but also from the former retainers of great clans who had been brought low, like the Imagawa and Takeda. The Hatamoto had a right to an audience with the shogun, but the Gokenin did not enjoy this privilege. Among the Hatamoto were four longtime retainers who deserve special mention here. These four generals served Tokugawa Ieyasu ably in many battles, including Sekigahara, and they were remembered later as the Tokugawa Shitenno, or Four Heavenly Kings of the Tokugawa. They were Honda Tarakatsu, Ii Naomasa, Sakakibara Yasumasa, and Sakai Taratsugu. The Honda, Ii, Sakakibara, and Sakai clans were heavily invested in the success of the shogunate, and you will certainly be hearing those names in subsequent episodes. Although the shogunate which he founded would eventually promulgate laws and codes, during his time at the helm, Tokugawa Ieyasu largely ruled by fiat, in the same fashion as his predecessors Hideyoshi and Nobunaga. Toward the end of his life, he promulgated a few codes which we will discuss shortly, and he would pen a rather famous code of conduct, 
but the practical source of his power did not lay in the scribing and execution of laws. The massive Tokugawa domain included some of the richest gold and silver mines in the nation, and the wealth which they provided helped to ensure that Ieyasu's personal capital city of Edo was well defended, and the potential for quickly raising an army served as a deterrent to any dissatisfied daimyo who would certainly lose in an engagement against him. In 1605, just two years after being named as the shogun, Tokugawa Ieyasu retired. He decided to enjoy his golden years fishing, meditating, and painting landscapes. <laughs> just kidding. This was a typical Japanese-style retirement. He officially stepped down, his son Hidetada was named as the new shogun, and Ieyasu continued to govern the affairs of the nation regardless. He did at least officially take on a new title, however, being named as the Ogosho, a term which literally means retired shogun. Much of his time as the Ogosho was spent overseeing the expansion and renovation of Edo Castle, but he also found time to travel to Kyoto in 1611 to observe the official enthronement of the new sovereign Emperor Go Mizunowo. In 1601, just two years before his elevation to shogun, Ieyasu had established a mint at Fushimi and proceeded to profit from issuing new coins which soon circulated through markets nationwide. Likewise, with the help of his trusted English-born samurai William Adams, he expanded Japan's economic reach to new international trading partners. Previous to this, the Portuguese had largely enjoyed a monopoly on trade with Japan, but soon the Dutch and other European adventurers began to frequent the designated trading ports. It should also be noted here that the Japanese themselves had already begun, since at least the mid-1500s, to venture into Southeast Asia themselves, establishing trading colonies in the Philippines. The kings of many nations throughout modern Thailand and Cambodia often hired Japanese bodyguards, who likely served in a similar capacity to the Varangian Guard of the Byzantine Empire, being more separated from local politics and thus above petty corruption, at least in theory. Southeast Asia, especially trading posts in the Philippines, became particularly important to Japan because of Hideyoshi's invasion of Chosan and the subsequent state of war with the Ming Dynasty. Among the ruling class of Japan, there existed a near-insatiable demand for silk. Thanks to personal experience, I can attest that summers are, for most of Japan, extremely humid. Unfortunately for the Japanese elite of the 1600s, China had cut off all direct trade, which included their only direct source of silk. Thus, the Portuguese played a vital role here for a time, providing second-hand access to the silk so that the nobles, ranking samurai, and their wives could enjoy cool, light kimonos during muggy summer months. The initial task to which Ieyasu had set William Adams was shipbuilding. Among various other factors, Ieyasu had observed that one of the primary reasons why the invasions of Korea failed was Japan's inferior maritime vessels. He was determined to ensure that Japan would be able to defend itself in the event of foreign invasion, a fear which, given the propensity of the Spanish and Portuguese to invade non-Christian nations, was not entirely unfounded. Adams set to work, but it would be several years before these mighty vessels would be complete. As Adams oversaw construction on his first Japanese ship, he also helped Ieyasu make inroads with Protestant European powers after Ieyasu had received a tepid response from the Spanish governor of the Philippines. 
The Dutch East India Trading Company was invited to trade with Japan in 1605, and in 1609 they established a trading post in Hirado, an outlying town of Nagasaki which is located on northern Kyushu. Several years later, a representative from the English East India Trading Company arrived to establish that organization's presence on Japan. Inviting the Dutch was practically a slap in the face to the Portuguese, whose ships had been constantly menaced by Dutch competitors who were under orders to seize, sink, or otherwise harry any vessel flying a Portuguese flag. However, this was hardly accidental, as Ieyas was especially eager to encourage the various powers of Europe to compete with one another for Japanese trade. William Adams managed to construct two great seafaring vessels for Tokugawa Ieyas. The first, completed in 1607, was an 80-ton vessel which was put straight to work engaging in a massive survey of Japan's coastline. The next year, a larger ship was completed, a 120-ton vessel which the shogun had ordered constructed specifically as a craft worthy of visiting far-flung nations around the world. In 1609, a Spanish galleon named the San Francisco wrecked off the coast of Kanto and its 373-member crew were forced to seek refuge on Japan. Ieyas received them enthusiastically, eager to break through the Portuguese trading monopoly and deal with powers like Spain directly. The leaders on board the Spanish galleon were receptive to Ieyasu's overtures to begin trading directly with New Spain, which is modern-day Mexico, as well as trading with the Spanish Empire at large. As a sign of good faith, he lent them the 120-ton Japanese-built ship, which they named the San Buenaventura and they returned to Mexico along with 22 Japanese passengers, who became the first recorded Japanese people to set foot on the continent of North America. The Viceroy of New Spain was grateful for the return of his crew and welcoming to his Japanese guests, but he nevertheless confiscated the ship, which would never again touch the shores of Japan. He feared that the Japanese might use such a vessel to become expert transcontinental navigators and likely worried about bringing yet another competitor into the mix for trade, resources, and even perhaps colonies. The shogunate was not the only Japanese faction experimenting with ocean voyages in the early 1600s, however. The Date clan had obtained special permission to build their own Spanish-style galleon for the purposes of sending their own embassy to New Spain and beyond. Their particular expedition departed in 1613 and returned in 1620. Much had changed in Japan in those ensuing years, but we will discuss that voyage as well as the lives of other Japanese international adventurers in a bonus episode at the close of this season. In addition to shipbuilding and making contact with more European trading partners for Japan, William Adams was also leading his own trading expeditions around Southeast Asia throughout the early 1610s. He traveled to Thailand, Vietnam, and other parts of Asia, and was keenly interested in trying to find the mythic Northwest Passage, which would allow ships from Japan to travel directly to Europe by navigating the North Seas, which they believed spanned across Canada. Although the Dutch East India Company also expressed interest in sponsoring such an exploratory venture, it never got beyond the planning phases. Adams frequently asked permission to return to England, but all of his requests were denied by Ieyasu. He was given the Japanese name Miura Anjin, Anjin meaning pilot, and granted a Japanese wife named Oyuki, with whom he sired two children, Joseph and Susanna. It is notable that while Oyuki's father was an important merchant, their family was of common birth and not from an illustrious samurai background. 
This has led some historians to posit that Adam's second marriage may have been motivated by love rather than politics, but we can't really be certain. It is somewhat ironic that the Edo period would later see Japan transformed into an isolated nation whose leaders purposefully attempted to cut off most contact with foreign influences. An outside observer of Tokugawa Ieyasu's reign might conclude that the nation was in the midst of a trade renaissance. This is another reason why it is a mistake to conceive of the Edo period purely as a static era in Japanese history. Its middle and end appear drastically different from its beginning. Even Ieyasu himself, however, did embrace a certain level of isolationism. In 1611, after years of granting favorable treatment to foreigners, the Bakufu began implementing measures to curtail and even prohibit the preaching of Christianity and the activities of the missionaries. Rather than an act of religious intolerance, these actions are best understood as being political in nature. Ending Portuguese influence over Japanese trade had always been one of Ieyasu's objectives, and we've already discussed how the Jesuits working in Japan occupied a political dimension. They frequently corresponded with their superiors in Europe, and in an age where the entangled powers of church and state were expanding into massive imperial projects, the Bakufu might have worried that some of these missives contained strategic and tactical intelligence, which could potentially be used in a future invasion. In 1612, an incident came to light in Shimabara Domain in northern Kyushu, which caused Ieyasu to believe that his hostility toward Christianity was completely justified. Okamoto Daihach, an aide to a Bakufu Roju, had promised to assist a daimyo named Arima Harunobu in recovering land that had been lost to the Arima clan during Sengoku Jidai. Both Daihach and Harunobu were Christians, which may be partly why Harunobu approached Daihach for assistance. Daihach, however, was dealing in bad faith. He took bribe after bribe from Harunobu, promising to use the money to get the attention of various Bakufu officials who might help, but ultimately pocketing the money for himself. Eventually, Harunobu became frustrated and appealed to the shogunate directly. Tokugawa Ieyasu was quite surprised to hear that Arima Harunobu had been lobbying for a return of former domains, since this was the first he or anyone in the government besides Okamoto Daihach had heard of it. The actions of Daihach were tantamount to fraud and treason, and Ieyasu was especially alarmed that daimyo nationwide might think that their domains could be expanding through bribing shogunate officials. Thus Daihach was subjected to a rather brutal method of execution and was sentenced to be burned to death. In the course of the investigation, however, Daihach revealed that Arima Harunobu had been plotting to arrange the assassination of the governor of Nagasaki. This particular official was not a petty daimyo, nor a representative of a petty daimyo, but worked for the shogunate directly as Nagasaki was considered the administrative property of the Bakufu. Thus, any attempt on the life of Nagasaki's governor was tantamount to a direct attack on the shogunate. Arima Harunobu was first detained in Kai province and then ordered to commit seppuku. Because his Roman Catholic faith forbade suicide, he arranged to be beheaded instead. The entire incident was unpleasant to be sure, but Tokugawa Ieyasu appears to have been particularly struck by the fact that both the men involved were Christians. He also noticed that many fellow believers attended the execution of Okamoto Daihach and prayed for his soul, singing hymns as his body was burned. 
Ieyasu thus came to believe that the Christian faith was a threat to the loyalty which he expected from his subjects, and thus a threat to the harmony of his realm. On January 27, 1614, Ieyasu himself proclaimed an edict making Christianity illegal in Japan. Churches in Kyoto were destroyed, and the missionaries who managed them arrested. Japanese Christians were arrested and deported along with their Jesuit friends. Among these deportees was none other than Takayama Shigetomo, more popularly known as Takayama Ukon, or by his Christian name of Dom Yusto Takayama, who lived out his final days in Manila, dying about a year after the declaration of the edict and about two months after his expulsion. Incidentally, the governor of the Spanish Philippines approached Shigetomo with an offer to lead an invasion of Japan, but he declined. That such an offer was made at all does seem to support Tokugawa Ieyasu's suspicions of the foreign missionaries, though I would not go as far as to say it justified future persecutions of Japanese Christians. Jesuit missionaries continued to sneak onto various islands throughout Japan to continue their work, but to Ieyasu's credit, he never had any put to death, but opted to quietly deport them. Certain future shoguns, however, would be far less hesitant to use bloodier methods to discourage such activities. Although he generally governed by fiat, Tokugawa Ieyasu had every intention of laying a legal foundation for the shogunate going forward. He convened several councils of scholars and nobles to formulate his two personal contributions to the legal code, the first of which was called the Buke Shohato, which means laws for the military houses. Its twelve articles were officially proclaimed in 1615, and they read as follows, quote, The samurai class should devote itself to pursuits appropriate to the warrior aristocracy, such as archery, swordsmanship, horsemanship, and classical literature. Amusements and entertainments are to be kept within reasonable bounds, and expenses for such activities are not to be excessive. The Han are not to harbor fugitives and outlaws. Domains must expel rebels and murderers from their service and from their lands. Daimyo are not to engage in social interactions with the people, neither samurai nor commoners, of other domains. Castles may be repaired, but such activity must be reported to the shogunate. Structural innovations and expansions are forbidden. The formation of cliques for scheming or conspiracy in neighboring domains must be reported to the shogunate without delay, as must the expansion of defenses, fortifications, or military forces. Marriages among daimyo and related persons of power or importance must not be arranged privately. Daimyo must present themselves at Edo for service to the shogunate. Conventions regarding formal uniform must be followed. Miscellaneous persons are not to ride in palanquins. Samurai throughout the realm are to practice frugality. Daimyo must select men of ability to serve as administrators and bureaucrats. End quote. The buke shohato served to cement the particular Tokugawa flavor of Bushido, which was that of enlightened warriors who were ideally more than just thugs with swords. Certainly it contains some echoes of Ashikaga Takauji's Kemmu Shikimoku with its exhortations toward frugality and duty, but it is also more direct in its expectations of the daimyo, who were now expected to behave as obedient subordinates to the shogun. 
the Bouquet Shohato would be expanded in the coming years, and the directive that the daimyo must attend the shogun in Edo would prove particularly useful and expandable. The articles restricting freedom of movement were largely a continuation of Hideyoshi's edicts, which ensured that those who were both discontented and armed could not coordinate easily with their counterparts in neighboring domains. Ieyasu's expansion of this to include daimyo was meant to prevent large-scale rebellion from fomenting which might threaten the stability of the bakufu. Following the buke shohatto was another promulgated set of laws called the kuge shohatto, laying out the expectation for behavior of the nobility who served the emperor in Kyoto. Unfortunately, the original kuge shohatto was lost in a great fire in 1661, and the later recollected editions which exist today contain slightly conflicting wording. The emperor was encouraged to dedicate his life to learning, composing poetry, and performing the rituals of his office to satisfy the expectations of heaven. He was urged to appoint ministers based on their ability rather than ancestry alone, and forbidden from giving gifts of robes which were a particular shade of purple. That last item might sound strange, but the sovereigns had, in previous eras, given such robes to monks who understood this gift as a sort of unilateral imperial endorsement, and then sometimes caused chaos as they attempted to give commands to competing schools or to their superiors. The Tokugawa shogunate was most likely trying to prevent the religious orders from rising anew and potentially consolidating enough power to challenge the bakufu and the warrior class at large. What is extremely noteworthy about the Kuge Shohato is that the emperor had never been bound by any particular law. Since time immemorial, Japanese sovereigns were perceived as being transcendent and above the authority of any earthly laws. That being said, the last sovereign who really tried to exert his own direct authority over the nation was Emperor Go-Daigo, and the resulting 55-year civil war had shattered any hope of direct imperial rule for generations afterward. You will also hopefully recall how Emperor Go-Nara attempted to relocate his court to Yamaguchi City in western Chugoku in 1551, and the resulting reactionary massacre of the nobility who had relocated had further drained the court of any practical influence outside the capital. While the Kuge Shohato was the first document to actually bind the sovereign under a law, the practical fact was that the imperial court had fallen into an impoverished, scandal-filled social club for blue bloods by the 1600s. While pro-imperial reactionaries of the later Meiji Restoration would use the Kuge Shohato as evidence of the Tokugawa shogunate's abuse of the imperial house and high-handed dictatorial oppression, modern scholarship usually understands this law as an attempt by Tokugawa Ieyasu to set the court back on the right track and help it avoid embarrassments of its recent past, both political and personal. Among the scholars who had compiled the Buke Shohato and the Kuge Shohato were a decent number of Confucians, who certainly tried to apply Confucian ethics to these law codes. When later generations of shoguns would claim that Tokugawa Ieyasu governed according to Confucian principles and sought to make Confucianism the preeminent national philosophy, they were working backward anachronistically to justify their own preferences. While Confucianism certainly had a role in shaping the Edo government, it was one voice among many vying for reform and innovation alongside the many traditions, norms, and expectations already established during the hegemony of Nobunaga and Hideyoshi. Like the two great unifiers before him, 
Tokugawa Ieyasu managed the nation as though it was one large fief over which he was the daimyo. There was little initially in the way of duties and division of functions, and the complex bureaucratic machinery which would come to define the Edo period had yet to be developed under his reign. His primary tool of control was the threat of force. It would be for future generations to make his model of government sustainable by striking a balance between sharing enough power for the government to be effective while holding enough power themselves to remain relevant and in a commanding position. While much of the nation fell into line under the new Tokugawa Bakufu, there was still one potentially powerful rival whom Ieyasu had arguably usurped, Toyotomi Hideyori. The Toyotomi clan was in a weaker position than the Tokugawa, thanks in part to how thin the Toyotomi family had become due to Hideyoshi's purges and the losses they suffered during the Korean invasions. In 1614, young Hideyori was 20 years old and ready to step into his late father's shoes as the new imperial regent. Next time, we will discuss the conflict that developed between Tokugawa Ieyasu and Toyotomi Hideyori as the Tokugawa and Toyotomi clans faced one another in combat for the last time. Until then, thank you for listening. If you would like access to exclusive bonus episodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes, please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash ahistoryofjapan. 